Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Offsite podcast where we chat all things construction and technology. My name's Carlos Cavallo. And I'm Jason Lanzini. Hello, Carlos. How are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. How are you? I am good. I was just, as we were just saying before we started recording, I'm, I'm home alone, sitting in a dungeon or I'm like my basement uh, recording a podcast. So would that, would you call that living the dream? I'd say so. Um, funnily enough, I uh, had a conversation with someone the other day and um, I was about to say he's a fan of the show. Fan just completely cringed me out. He's someone who listens to the show um, and he was like, ah, Jason Stoppelganger and sent me a picture. And um, I'm just going to share it now. A, this is such a set, set up. That was not even, that was not even, not even a segue from what I just said. You just horseshoe <laughs> that in there. To... Prime Minister oh, of Canada. Okay. Okay. I'll take that. I'll... <laughs> it's not, I'm not slacking you off. Um, Can you send me his uh, number? <laughs> I think it's a pretty reasonable one, but yeah, I think that's pretty, pretty strong. Um, now it looks I won't like I paid you to do that. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> Absolutely not. Right. Um, so today we have a guest on the show, um, but as, as he's based over in Australia, Jason, I'll let you do the introduction. So, uh, over to you. Cool. Yeah. Today I'm, uh, really excited to be joined, uh, by Andrew Wadrowski, who's a structures manager, uh, for CPB currently working on the Warringah freeway upgrade project. Uh, I guess it's a really tight and challenging project. I've had it described to me by folks on the project as like a, a billion plus dollar enabling project for the Western Harbour tunnel that, you know, Carlos and I spoke about before that goes sort of under um, Sydney yep. Harbour. Uh, the B1M did that whole video uh, walkthrough and analysis of the, uh, of the project. And I guess um, most importantly is uh, Andrew and I are the same age, um, regardless of uh, how much younger he looks in his LinkedIn profile. So Andrew, mate, thank you very much for staying up late and joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, not a problem. Pleasure to be here. I've, um, I've listened to the first uh, few of your podcasts and I've really enjoyed it. So um, have very pleased to be a guest. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. So I've got like a, I've got like a ton of questions and um, obviously we, um, we went to, we were at dinner a few weeks ago and uh, we, we started going back and forth. And so, I guess for those listening, you've, your background, you've worked like on a, on a lot of large infrastructure projects and you've, I guess, walked the progression from site engineer to, to your current role. And I guess this question is a little bit out of the blue, but sometimes I reflect on it. Is it, do you have a part of that journey that was like your favorite, like a role that was your favorite, you know, from site engineer all the way up? I, a tough question. And I think everyone would be different, but for me, I love construction. I love the site side of the role. So for me, back when I was a site engineer or a grad engineer, and I was spending, you know, 60, 70% of my time on site around construction activities, watching things happen, watching cranes work, watching concrete pours, that's probably the time I enjoyed it the most, probably slightly now been over 10 years in the industry and the industry's probably changed a bit as well. And it was probably a little bit more pure engineering construction back at that point in my career. Whereas 
you can see the industry and the role of the engineer within the industry has changed significantly over just the last 10 years. I like, it would have been very fascinating to go work 20, 30 years ago, see how much yep. more even pure again, it would have been. Um, but the engineer is becoming much more a, a jack of all trades and a, and a project manager rather than an contraction engineer. Um, so that probably that time yeah. in my career was probably the one I've enjoyed the most. Yeah. I, um, cause I, I sometimes think about it when I get, I don't know if you have that thing where you get like your phone sending you like memories of, of old photos and stuff from, from the past. And, uh, occasionally I get photos from projects from like, you know, 20, 2011, uh, 2012 and yeah, it does feel like I, as a site engineer, you have this like connection with that group of people that you're trying to build something with, uh, and you're working as a team. It's got like that, like football, like rugby team vibe. You're trying to make stuff happen and get stuff done on site every day. And then as you go up through different roles, uh, you kind of, I guess there's an excitement when you hit like maybe like a project engineering and doing that forecasting thing. Cause you feel like you're running a business and there's like the money aspect to it, uh, comes into it. Um, but then I feel like beyond that, you kind of start to lose the connection with the site a little bit and it, it becomes less about construction. I guess like what you were saying, right. It's like less about the actual building or something and, and more about like the, the business of it. Yeah, you're completely right. And it's interesting. I think as you see people in those more advanced roles, the SPE and the um, area manager, project manager roles, there's a real variety of people and their interests. And that's reflected on their take on how they perform that role. So you see some SPEs of a more mature vintage who just froth on the construction and the site side of things. And rather than progressing past an SPE, they're happy to sit in that SPE role because it's a nice spot for them where they can still stay connected to the site and don't have to deal with some of the politics and the, the management side of things that take away from the can, time you can spend on construction activities. Yeah. Um, whereas other people are probably more business orientated um, and prefer the, the forecasting, the month end, um, all those sort of office space activities that are still important, uh, and play a role in the overall picture, but it's real interesting to see that dichotomy between different people within the role and different takes on it. Yeah. And then like, I, um, I was talking to someone else, uh, someone I used to work with when I was like a site engineer and, um, uh, today, and cause I, I shared a post recently of like, uh, of talking about logistics and, uh, it was an image of a, of a project we'd worked on back in like 2012 or 2013. And, uh, we were pouring, we we're pouring concrete from a barge into a pile. And, uh, at the same time we had like a piling rig that we'd like craned in and sat on top of the, the, the same structure. And he was talking about like all the change and all the paperwork and stuff we had to do. Cause it was like a change to our construction sequence. And I guess it got me thinking about like how much paperwork and stuff, like, like you were saying before, the role of like that, the site engineer has changed like significantly over time and in the direction of like, would you say more paperwork? Oh, hundred percent. Like you, it, you, you look at the role of an engineer and the function it serves now, it is. I, the engineer, they really, the role should not have engineer in the title because at no point do you get a calculator out and do any statics calculations or, um, you know, calculate the pressure on form work or 
anything like that. The reason you use your calculator is to do your um, cost analysis or your forecasting. Um, So that's a complete change. And so for me, like I I really enjoyed the the pure construction side of things that I generally froth and get excited on. Um, I've used froth too many times in this podcast already. And stop using yeah, that. yeah, that's gonna make. The, so to, we'll have to do some translations. Uh, we'll put it through like ChatGPT or something to do some translations for for UK audience. Uh, or there'll be little disclaimers in the in the thing. But yeah, you're, you're coming across what very often. Awesome. Slower, what do you think? Slower as well. <laughs> um, no, but I genuinely get excited by constructions, big cranes, um, big lifts, big false work decks, all that sort of stuff. I, um, that is generally my passion. And probably the thing that has brought me the most fulfillment in my career is being able to drive past a project I've, I've been on and literally look at the foundations of the bridge above me and go, oh, I remember that night when we had a problem with the pile concrete, we had to stay back to like, like literally eight o'clock because the, the pile kept dropping. We didn't know where the concrete was going. We had to keep the bats plan open. We were all there until 10 PM, like pulled day makers out of nowhere. And it's those sort of stories. And you go, well, we dealt with that. That's a little story. No one else really knows about, like you said, about the yeah. team that was there doing it. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's the thing that really gives me the sense of pride and, and why I'm so passionate about it. Do you, do you find people like as they go through, as you were saying before, some people like have different things that they, they take out of it when they get up in those more senior roles. But this is kind of also reflecting on a conversation I had today. Do you find people like lose the love for it and then drop out of construction and go into to other things uh, as they sort of, it becomes less about the construction, more about like the, the business? Interesting question. I would actually say the answer to your question is yes, but not for the reason you gave. I think yeah, right. people are, I think if people are passionate about construction, they stay in it, even with the paperwork side of things, because they still get to be involved in the construction, they may just choose a slightly different path so they can be involved in the construction side of things more and less on the paperwork. So whether that means they get to a position and don't want to progress further than that. Um, or maybe I've heard of some engineers, um, and one of the best site managers I've ever worked with, he started as an engineer in South Africa and then the UK. And you know, I know in the UK engineers are much more hands-on, do their own, um, set out, all that sort of stuff came to Australia was horrified that an engineer spent most of his time in the office, um, and switched to become a supervisor. But then because he had an engineering background, he was fantastic as an engineer, as your site manager or supervisor, because he understood what you're expected to do and produce. And he would actually support you rather than just yelling and abusing you for not having what he wanted. Um, but then I'd say a lot of people drop out early on in that site engineer PE space because they weren't expecting the hours, the pressure and all that sort of thing. And they just get over that and they either move. Um, it's interesting. A lot of people have moved in probably that I've had interactions with in the last five years, either into the consultancy space or into the client space, because it's still in the same industry, but you know, eight to five sort of business hours, all of that sort of perks, um, without some of the drawbacks of the construction side. Yeah, that's interesting. I wasn't going to go down that angle, but like, if you, if you think about, if you, let's say you were talking to a younger version of yourself, or you were talking to a young site engineer that's, that's starting out, what do you think about the idea of going, whether it be consultancy or, or clients side in terms of people's like, what, is it something that people should feel comfortable to do to get the, I guess the, the less 
slightly less pressure and uh, maybe less hours or, or does it, I guess, stunt their progression and development? That's a hard question to answer because it's all going to be in terms of what the individual, what aspirations and what dream role or position they have. So if, if you want to, and yeah, this is purely my opinion, so I'm not saying it's the right one, but that we're all about opinions, mate. Nothing, nothing on here we've ever spoken about is fact. It's all, it's, it's strictly opinion. We should change, we should change the name of the podcast to strictly opinions. Um, um, uh, so, um, uh, for me to go into the client side role or go into the consultancy role, having the contractor's background, uh, knowledge experience is crucial to being able to add value either in the consultancy role or the client role. Um, unfortunately more in the client side space, it's very evident which client people you interface with who have had constructors backgrounds and who haven't, uh, and not saying that people haven't don't provide value, but it's just a completely different type of value. So for me, and again, so it all depends. I've always wanted to stay construction side. I think I would be bought on the consultancy side doing, because I think the consultancy sides, all the office work an engineer does it forecasting, planning, programming without the payoff of actually going and doing the work. Some people I know love that side of things and hate the pressure, the stress, the phone calls every 10 minutes from a foreman going, where's my concrete? Um, why am I missing pipes? Um, that it's, can it's, be you've, 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 you've walked the line very, uh, very, um, eloquently, but like, let's say you get a phone call from, from, uh, a young, a young person They're they're leaving uni. They got a couple of different offers, one from a client, one from a consultancy, one from, one from CPV and says, Andrew, you know, what, sh what should I take? I, you know, I want to, I want to, um, I want to be able to, uh, eventually be. I want to leave my options open. I want to be, I want to have the option in the future to, to go senior in like either of those three streams. Um, where should I, where should I start? You've what made you that, say? you've made the question easier. I don't have to hot take it as much as I was going to without that last little disclaimer from you. So if you want to leave your options open, you should be going contractor side to get as high as possible because that keeps all three options open because you've got the knowledge and the experience of how to actually build something. If you go to client side too early, you don't have the knowledge of how to actually construct something or how things actually get constructed. Yes, you get to watch yep. it, but because you're not involved in the nitty gritty, you get, you just lose and you don't, um, in my opinion, get the full understanding of how things work, how construction works. Like it's as simple as like, how does formwork get erected? How much crane time do you need per, you know, 10 square meters of formwork? How long does it? take to pump 10 cubes of concrete, how, how much room do you need? Like they're the fundamentals that you learn on the contractor's background. They're all things that build up a program, a forecast. Likewise with consultancy, if you go to consultants too, you're meant to be forecasting. How can you forecast something you've never done? How can you plan something you've never done? Um, and it's, it's something. It's the difference between, sorry, sorry. It's just saying it's no, like it's the difference between doing something and watching someone do it, you know? Correct. So it's one thing. And I've luckily been able to do it to an extent. I wish I could have done it more with my teams, uh, on this particular project, I need to, to try and do it uh, more and give my engineers more of an opportunity in the space. 
but I'm a big fan. This is what I got to do as a site engineer is my foreman put me on tools. I greeted concrete. I was on the needle. I was, um, I had to help blow out a line, block line on a static line pump. I had to, um, I got to drive a dumpy. I got to literally do the top. And when you actually looking at standing there, how hard is it to pull a screen through some concrete? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I challenge anyone to go do a hazard who thinks it's easy because it is impossibly difficult. Especially for a short little bloke like me, I'm knee deep in concrete trying to pull this screed. Everyone's laughing oh, at me. For, for me, the back starts falling apart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The back starts well, falling apart. It's, it's, it's hard work. Or if you hold a needle, like I remember I was holding a needle for maybe an hour at best. Three hours later, my hands and my shoulders were still vibrating with the needle. Um, and then you, you know, you expect people to go do a pull for 10 hours and you get shielded with your woman. Why do you have three blokes standing around? Well, I need to circulate them through the needle and the shovels until you actually go do it. You go, oh, no, that's just wasting money there. Yeah. 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 Again, translation for those in the UK, a needle is a concrete vibrator. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> that's good. Uh, Carlos, do you have any questions, man? Yeah, um, actually just touching on what you just said about the experience side and consultancy, I think the same is with planners. The best planners always work with Vex engineers, whereas some planners are going straight to planning and I don't really get how you could do that because you're just going to, you're just going to play postbox to an extent because you don't have the experience to sort of properly, I probably offended a whole bunch of planners there, but that was uh, what I've experienced. But um, tying back to, uh, you say you, you loved obviously working on site, being close to site, being in the thick of construction. Uh, you should definitely move to England, by the way, because all the QSs do all the heavy lifting engineers just stay on site, which uh, you probably enjoy a bit more. But uh, how does it affect, because you manage things like commercial and you're overseeing a lot more in Australia compared to what I experience over here, how does that actually affect your relationship with, say, the client? Because here, the engineers can sort of focus on delivering the job and the commercial team are sort of to an extent dealing with like forecasting change and the politics side of things to an extent. Does that make it more stressful over there? Because everything is all within the same team. So you can potentially have disputes, which is distracting you from just trying to deliver what you want to deliver. Definitely. It's interesting you came from the client side. I would say it creates more issues within the subcontractor, uh, main contractor space. Uh, and again, this is one of the journeys I went on as a young engineer. I remember as a young engineer is like, screw the subby. It's always their fault. Do all that. Um, and I'd like, I'd reflect now on some of the emails and some of the correspondences, um, I sent over my time. I look, I look back and cringe in horror in terms of how young and naive I was and what I said and how I said it. But that's definitely a thing because effectively I'm managing the cost. So if, if there's day works or there's a delay and I've got to explain it upstream to my management, so then I'm going to try and manage the subby as tightly as possible to minimize those interactions I've got to have upstream. So it definitely creates space. I think there is definitely within the industry, there's like pressure to put pressure down on the subby. And whereas as I've moved on, I've like definitely realized it's a relationship's business at its core. So you need to develop those relationships. They need to be mutually beneficial. Like we, if we make money in a sub, it doesn't, that's not actually a good outcome because you're not building trust to then use that subby again or anything like that. The best outcome is we make money and the subby makes money. Uh, and that comes through trustful relationships. 
relationships that work two ways. So we take on feedback, we improve how we interact or how we provide access or the conditions we let them work in and vice versa. With the client side of things, yes, it provides challenges, but in some ways I actually think it helps from managing the client because we are more aware of the cost when the client asks us for something, yeah, we've got more information at hand to deal with that situation in terms of, yep, that's fine. If, if you want us to ask us to do this, you know, it's going to cost X, Y, and Z, or this is going to be the impact program that da, 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 we're a little bit more armed. Now, obviously we do have commercial teams and, and client interfacing managers who will do like the heavy, the big delay or variation claims, uh, which are the general, the sticking points, you know, the, the big multi-million dollar ones, but on the day-to-day stuff, having a little bit of in- information on the commercials probably helps manage upstream the client. Um, for my experience, I haven't had any issues where it's caused an undue stress or strain on that relationship to this point. That may change in the future, but at this point it's been all right. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there with like, you're more equipped or armed to do the conversation because if, if someone, whether it's subby or client is suggesting like alternate options to actually know the effect or whether any of those are actually like valid options is useful rather than like, yeah, we can look at this, go away and have some commercial manager say, you can't do that because there's no budget for it. Um, yeah. that makes a lot more sense to like have that conversation at the cold face. Yeah. And I think I, I also agree with Andrew, like managing down is like super, um, or like to subcontractors is, is totally, um, you know, we spoke about it in the previous, um, uh, episode, Carlos, I think we missed that like subcontractor side where as soon as you get like a QS managing that contractual relationship, they're even probably less likely to have that collaborative approach that Andrew's talking about that he's built up through like being in the trenches with them um, trying to deliver a project. Uh, and so you end up like, if I reflect on my, my experience in the UK and you get, it's quite easy for some one person to say, oh, that's the subby's responsibility. Like it takes everyone yeah. agreeing that like, we're in this together. It just takes one person to, to, to take that, like that's in their contract, you know, subby bashing yeah, and approach. The and the mindset is to... like, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, man. Yeah. The mindset is like, that's your responsibility. And then you're making the relationship difficult on site. And then site's probably thinking, well, if they're losing money, like we, they could compromise quality. In your mind, you're thinking, well, the policies are the contracts, so they have to do it. But in reality, like you are sacrificing quality. If you're taking every pound away from them, they're going to put less people on the job or rush to finish to save cash. So yeah, the, you can easily sit in the contractual world thinking, well, they, they have to deliver it no matter what, but that's actually not in practice how it works. Carl, you hit nail on the head. So the interesting thing I've found is upper management have that view contracts, contract, that's gospel. Young engineers come in with that mindset contracts, contract, and it's sort of the in-between that have to massage and maneuver those relationships to get the best overall outcome. You know, in certain things, you've got to compromise on a little bit of uh, maybe the dollars, you give them a little bit more dollars to get the program or the quality up to where it is because they've underpriced it a little bit and you need to help them get over the line or other times. Yeah. So it's yeah, definitely massaging that relationship through to get the best outcome. Yeah. Andrew, one of the things that we've spoken, I think we spoke about previously when, when we, when we caught up in Sydney, but 
I'm I'm guessing that a lot of your previous projects had a large amount of like a design scope in them, uh, like DNC. I definitely know that your 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 previous two were, I think, at least weren't they? Oh, all all the projects I've worked on have been DNC. Yeah, and I guess um, I've you know I've spoken about it previously, and I've got this opinion that as like a contractor having design in your scope is kind of like having to deliver a project with this like live grenade in your pocket. Like it might be fine, but at some point it's, it, there's a pretty good chance it's going to come and blow you up. Um, what's your, been your experience uh, on large infrastructure, like DNC uh, contracts? Luckily the projects I've been on um, haven't had when I say haven't had too many major issues with design, I think every DNC contract has design problems that delay start of project that delay elements of the works and the likes. So if you set that as the baseline, yes, I've experienced all of that, but I think that's just the baseline. So we haven't had anything that's absolutely crucified us and killed the project. I think that's just par for course. I've never worked on a construct only. So I know that would probably open up another can of worms but one's got to think you see like every major project i can't remember one major project actually come on time or budget in the last 10 years that's of a significant dollar value you've got to think if the design was locked in prior to the contractor coming on board your your value growth has got to be significantly smaller but i think it comes down to the politic like we now infrastructure projects have become political oh, politicized and governments are trying to get them turned around within their terms um, so yep. they can be the heroes that have delivered this new piece of infrastructure. And then that, that drives a crunch within the program for the DNC. And then what, what always happens is the design and the construction start overlapping. Um, and then that's always a recipe for disaster and rework. Um, so I don't know if you could somehow take the politics out of it and actually get things designed before as a separate package for the overall package of works completely independent and then go out to market with that, I think you'd get a higher quality outcome, a more reliable um, program uh, and definitely less blowout. Yeah, the, the like, I in my experience, the conversations in the room go something like this and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is like, um, this part of the design is delayed. Okay, as the contractor, you know, this was supposed to be ready on a certain date. We're supposed to start on site. That drives when construction is going to happen. We want to hold our program. It's not our fault that it's delayed. It's the client's issues or whatever, like a latent condition or whatever that's causing our design delay. So we'll hold that. Then the client goes, well, you have an ob obligation to mitigate the delay. Uh, and then, uh, so you can't just sit on your hands and wait for that issue to be solved. And then, so you get forced under these contract terms to mitigate the delay by splitting the design into like, okay, we can start these three things, but not these other two things that just like kicks off this whole snowballing thing of like your whole strategy for how you're going to deliver the design is now like upended and you're sort of starting some things and you can't start other things. There's like, there's like a massive cost to that, to the contractor with you know, you now have three times or, you know, say you've got one of those issues, it might be manageable. So you get two or three of those and suddenly your design team doubles in size. There's, you know, people trying to make design decisions that are now locked in because you've started construction on certain things. Like the whole project just balloons in complexity and it's really hard to measure that complexity. It's like a disruption rather than it's delay and you can never really claim it. 
um, but you're kind of bound under the contract to mitigate it. And yeah, it's, it's like a, is, is that how it like ends up in your experience? I guess you I like made it. a you whole statement and then you just described it perfectly. You've obviously endured the scars, uh, of a DNC project. Yeah. How do you fix it? Other than like, can, can you fix it other than just do the design first? Interestingly enough, right. May, maybe you flip design on its head and rather going to split packages at the end. And I don't, I don't agree with this. I just designed at the start, but if we're going to look at the problem and, and try and solve the problem, the problem's not going to construct only start at a split pack. So from a program perspective, I learned on the last job, we started with this nice program. We're doing blocks of work in terms of street blocks from street to street, six months in the project, we're now doing 10 meter, 10 meter increments within that block. And that's how the program split yeah. up. If we just programmed everything at the start in those 10, 10 meter increments, well, then we would have been set up, our mindset would have been in that mode and we could have delivered in that fashion. So perhaps maybe the solution is you break your design up into smaller increments from the start so that you're geared up and your design delivery is geared up in that fashion from the start rather than pivoting halfway through. Yeah, it's, it's extremely difficult. Um, and it, uh, it leads on to this other problem that we discussed, which is like the, the projects like seemingly getting, getting bigger. And so like, I guess final question, cause, cause I am conscious of time, but the, um, you know, we spoke about the idea of red tape and projects, uh, like, I think it's objective that projects get bigger and bigger in value over time. If you look back like, uh, 10 years ago, I guess the first question is, do you believe that projects are getting more complex because, you know, of things like, uh, as cities get bigger, we're building, you know, a road that we're going to build is now a tunnel or you know, the intersection we're going to build has got all this new technology that we have to also put in, or are they about the same size and we're just making them harder with paperwork and more stakeholders to, to throw in the mix. And this is your hot take to finish. Right. Are we going into the next episode of the podcast here? Cause you, you're just getting me going. There's another half an hour in this. Um, uh, I did, a, I did a bit of quick research cause we were throwing this around. So. Yeah. Panama Canal, 1914. Mega project? Yes or no? Uh, uh, inflation adjusted. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah. Panama Canal, 1914. Yes, definitely. 21 billion in 2023 money. Yeah. Mm. It's good value. Uh, Channel Tunnel, uh, 90s. Yeah. Uh, 27.6 billion, 2023 money. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a station. And Three Gorges Dam, 94 to 2006, 37 billion, all US dollars. So for me, that, that was telling because we've already been doing mega projects this size. I think we're just making things a lot harder. If, if you look on the client side of things, particularly when it's a government client and not a private equity client, you look at the team they have, and I understand there's higher expectations from the taxpayer that they're getting value for money, quality for money, standards of, of such a value. But you, you look at the head counts and stuff and, um, it, it's in, increasing astronomically. And then the conditions within the contract, uh, again, just through the 10 years of my career, the contract was hired because they're a competent tier one contractor. There wasn't a lot of scrutiny on temp works or community consultation or Enviro. We were picked because we were competent on those deliverables. Nowadays, 
there's a whole raft of requirements, um, additional reviews, approval processes, um, from the client and the client involves themselves in, which adds time costs, all that sort of thing. So ultimately I don't think, I think we've got more complex because technologies come into projects. That's definitely an element. Um, but we should also be having benefits from having software that helps us plan software that helps us pay people, helps us software that helps forecast, but, um, we have definitely made things harder by adding all this red tape and approvals and, and all of that. You strip all that back. Yeah. I it's think like, people, yeah. It's like, it's like the, the legacy of like the last 10 years, it does feel a lot like that. There, there wasn't a problem that a, uh, that a form or, or an additional process couldn't, couldn't solve, you know? Uh, and that it should happens. be like the, um, uh, like the, like the Kerry Packer line from that, uh, media inquiry back in the day, which is like for every new form you bring in, you should get rid of one. Like it should be a one in one out strategy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, mate, thank you very much for joining us. That was super interesting. Um, and yeah, really appreciate staying up late. Um, uh, Andrew really, really thank you very much. Um.